supposedly he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. You have to do what you have to do. Please, I'm an attorney. I can port you into the poorhouse. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. All righty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, I'm taking you to law school. A few episodes ago, I talked about retiring from the law and I talked about my journey to law school. Well, now it's about time that I talk to you about law school. Because let me tell you, that's an experience. I joke around about lawyers because I was one. I consider myself a retired lawyer now. But even when I wasn't a retired lawyer, I pretty much joked about being a lawyer and joked about lawyers and made fun of lawyers all of the time. Because by and large, lawyers are not the most fun people in the world. There are exceptions. I like to think of myself as one. And don't get me wrong, there are lawyers out there who I truly enjoy and I truly admire as people. But by and large, they're not people that I generally choose to hang with. Let's just leave it at that. And it's because of the kind of person you have to be to be a lawyer. Not everybody has to be this way, but this is how we're taught. Law school teaches us to be the way that we are. And so that's what I'm going to talk to you about today, this whole teaching process. And before I do that, just to recap briefly, I wound up going to law school after about five years of working real jobs that weren't law jobs after I graduated from college. And I wound up at the University of Toledo College of Law. Before I got there, I'd obviously done some research and some reading about law school. One of my research tools, or resources I guess is a better word, was an old movie called The Paper Chase. Now I know we shouldn't base our life decisions on movies and TV shows, but sometimes they do give you a flavor of what life is like in a different world or in a different realm. Like the old movie Serpico, with Al Pacino in it, gave me a view of what police work was like in New York City when you were trying to be a good cop. It's based on a true story. I read the book, I watched the movie, and it really was an eye-opening view of what police work was like. The Paper Chase was kind of similar. This is an old, old movie, so you're going to have to go look for it if you want to see it. But I remember the main villain is too strong a word, but the main professor that everybody feared at law school was Professor Kingsfield. And there were a couple of lines that stuck in my head that Professor Kingsfield said in that movie that proved to be 100% true. The first line, which I always paraphrase, but the actual line is, you come in here with a skull full of mush and you leave thinking like a lawyer. I always paraphrase that to say, I teach you how to think like a lawyer. Because that's what the professor does. And that's kind of what this other line that I remember Kingsfield saying also means. You teach yourselves the law, but I train your mind. That's also 100% true. Becoming a lawyer is a changing of thought processes. Going to law school teaches you how to think and reason an entirely different way that's foreign to any other way you've ever thought before. I'm not saying it's a good way. I'm not saying it's a bad way. It's just a different way. And I'm going to explain that in just a minute, but I want to give you kind of a background of what law school is all about. Law school is generally a three-year program if you're going full-time. If you go to an accredited law school, generally you complete the law program in three years. If you're really ambitious, you can get out in two and a half years. If you go at nights, it can take four, it can take five, it can take six years, depending on how many hours you take at night. And that's because of the number of courses you have to take, the number of hours of completed courses you have to take. And that's determined by each school. But there's a minimum number you have to take. And if you complete all the hours, and if you do all the things you're supposed to do in the law school, you get what's called a Juris Doctor. It's called a JD degree, Juris Doctor degree. 
It's basically a diploma, an academic credential, if you will, that paves the way to a career as a lawyer. It's basically the key to the kingdom. You have to have that before you can take a bar exam in any state. So that's the goal. You go to law school to get the JD degree. Now, the law school you go to can determine which bar you take, and you usually go to a law school unless it's an Ivy League school like Harvard or Yale or a place like Michigan or Stanford. Those nationally recognized law programs open the doors by themselves just because they're the programs that they are. Oh, you're a Harvard grad? Well, you must be super smart. But if you're not going to one of those places, if you go to a place, like in my case, University of Toledo, you're getting basically the same education. You're being taught the same things. You're being taught to think like a lawyer about these topics. But in Toledo, my goal was to practice law in Ohio. That's why I went to Toledo. My plans changed as years went on, but my initial plan was to stay in Ohio. And the reason you do that is when you graduate from an Ohio law school, you're going to interview at Ohio law firms, and all of the people there generally also graduate from Ohio law schools. And many of them graduate from the school you graduated from. So it's kind of a fraternity type feel. Oh, you went to UT? So did I. Cool. What did you think of Professor Smith? Wasn't he a jerk? You have something in common when you go through the interview process. The fact that you go to a school in one state and go to work in another state is not unheard of, but it doesn't always happen that way. And as I proved, I went to UT and wound up in New Jersey and practiced most of my career in New Jersey. The problem with doing that is that you have the JD degree, you have the Juris Doctor. But to practice in a particular state, each state bar association, the bar association is the group of attorneys that runs the attorney bar in the state. And bar, by the way, is not the bar with liquor. It's the bar in a courtroom that used to exist that doesn't really exist anymore, but it's an old-fashioned way of referring to the group of attorneys. It's the bar. But let's not get lost in trivia. Each state sets its rules, and in order to practice in each state, if you're a brandy new attorney, you have to pass each state's bar exam, which is a specialized test. And each state has its own types of questions, its own rules for admissions, its own areas of testing. So if you go to school in Ohio, there's nothing that stops you from taking the New Jersey bar. What you run up against is the fact that you went to school in Ohio, and nobody is going to know you as you interview in New Jersey. You might pass the bar and you might be qualified for a position in New Jersey and you might be an attorney admitted to practice in New Jersey, but it's getting those doors open to actually get a job that can be a problem. But I'm jumping way ahead. We'll get back to that. The law school education is three years long. I got out in two and a half. My commitment to myself, because I'd given up jobs to go to law school, my commitment to myself, especially since I was financing this myself with student loans, I didn't want to saddle myself with more debt than I could handle. So I committed to myself going in that I was going to get out in two and a half years, and I did. But to do that, I had to take a full schedule of classes in the fall semester and in the spring semester, and I had to take classes over the summer. That proved to be a little bit of a problem because ordinarily, summertime in law school is used to get clerkships. You get a clerkship at a law firm, and you get job experience at that clerkship working in a law environment. And a lot of those clerkships turn into job offers. That's why they're sought after. That's why they're valuable. But in order for me to graduate in two and a half years, I was going to have to get a clerkship very close to the law school so that I could take classes all summer. So I had this plan in mind to get out in two and a half years, and I was able to pull it off. But we'll save all that for another time. So what's law school like? What is law school like? Well, in law school, they have the general categories of law that they teach you about 
or actually that you teach yourself about. Because as Professor Kingsfield said, you teach yourselves the law, I train your mind. That's what the professors do. So the areas of the law that we have to teach ourselves, the general broad areas of the law, civil procedure. Now, what is that? Well, I'm going to try to explain it simply. Lawyers love to use legalese. I try not to when I don't have to. So I'm going to try to keep it simple. Civil procedure. That's the procedure that they use in courts on how to make cases happen. Criminal procedure. Same thing, except in the criminal field. Civil law is if you're walking up somebody's stairs and you fall down their stairs and you sue them for failing to maintain their stairs. Criminal law is where you break into somebody's house and the police arrest you. Two different kinds of wrongs. That's what we call them in the law. Wrongs. There's civil wrongs and there's criminal wrongs. I know, already your head is spinning, right? I know mine was. Now, those civil wrongs fall into a field of the law called torts. If you fail to maintain your stairs, if you're negligent in that regard, and somebody falls down those stairs, you've committed a tort. So there's a whole area of the law called tort law, where you learn about all of the different kinds of torts. It's one of the more interesting aspects of the law, and it's also a fun word to say. So I always kind of liked torts, and we'll talk about that in the future. I mentioned criminal law. There's criminal law, which talks about the different kinds of crimes. Murder, burglary, assault, battery. All the usual things you think of as far as criminal behavior. There's also criminal procedure. How the criminal cases are handled and what the process is. And that's a lot of rules involved in that. There's also the broad area of constitutional law. Oh, what's that? Just what you think. It's all about what the Constitution means and what your rights are under the Constitution, where those rights came from, what they mean, how they've been interpreted, and how those rights can be enforced and infringed upon. It's a very broad area of the law, and it has specialized subparts as well. But every lawyer studies constitutional law. Whether or not every lawyer understands it is an entirely different question, but we'll discuss that later too. Then there's the area of property law. Property law. Yeah, property law is an important area of the law for a number of reasons. Who owns what? How can you own something? Where do ownership rights come from? What does it mean if you own property? What are mineral rights? What are water rights? What are air rights? What's the doctrine against perpetuities? Oh, there's all kinds of fun things to talk about in property law. And we learn about that. There's contract law. You know what a contract is? An agreement between two people to do something? I agree to make you 500 widgets. You agree to pay me a dollar a widget. I get the widgets done within 60 days. That's the contract. If only contracts were that simple. No, there's all kinds of what we call boilerplate or legalese built into every contract. You know those terms of service you read or you don't read and actually skip over every time you load a program into your PlayStation or your Xbox or your computer? Those are all contracts and all that language drafted by lawyers. And what that language does is protect the person who hired you to draft it. That's why when you're getting into complex contracts, each side should have a lawyer so that each side reviews the language of the contract to make sure their side is protected as much as possible and to include provisions to protect them in case something isn't specifically addressed in the contract. That's a very simplified way of discussing contracts, but that's what contract law is about. And every lawyer has to take at least one contracts course. Then there are various administrative and regulatory law courses you're supposed to take tax law, the administrative code, workers' compensation. There's all different subcategories of law that you also take courses on. Some are required, some are elective. So that's the stuff that you're facing when you get into law school. The other thing you're facing when you get into law school is a whole bunch of other smart people. You have to have a certain level of smarts to at least get admitted into law school. 
Now, not everybody going into law school is a genius, don't get me wrong. You might not have a lot of common sense, something I've also learned, but you have to be smart. You have to have good grades. You have to have done well on the LSAT, the law school aptitude test. And you have to have filled out an application that impressed the admissions officers at the law school. Whether you had to do an essay or answer a series of questions, each school does it differently. But you got to be smart enough to get your way in the door and then be accepted into the school. And what that means is, in every class that you attend, you're going to be up against a lot of smart people. And a lot of them think they're the smartest one in the class. And that's one thing a lot of people in law school forget sometimes, is everybody there is pretty damn smart. So you're used to being the top of the class A student. Well, not everybody's going to be top of the class in law school. There's going to be people smarter than you in law school. And you're going to find yourself at the bottom of the class in some classes. And that's a real shock to some people, especially folks who've come from prestigious schools who are on the dean's list all of the time in undergrad. All of a sudden they find themselves in law school and they're getting bad grades. And why are they getting bad grades? Because this is hard work. Going to law school is hard work. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. But you have a lot of people fighting against each other to try to be the top of the class, to try to be recognized as one of the smart ones. And why is that important? Well, because when you're in law school, you're trying to build a resume for yourself. You want to be somebody who law firms want to hire. You want to be somebody who professors are going to notice so that you can get a good recommendation from them. You want to have a resume that glows so that when you go on those interviews for clerkships at the end of your first year or at the end of your second year, you're going to stand out. Now, how do you do that in law school? Well, there are two things that you can do in law school to really stand out, aside from getting good grades. The most prestigious is being on the Law Review. The Law Review is basically the law school's magazine. Except magazine is too loose a word for it, and magazine doesn't have the same meaning as it did when I was in school. When I was in school, they still printed the Law Review. It was a very thick magazine. Imagine a Reader's Digest, except like triple the size of the Reader's Digest that's out there now. And inside the Law Review are articles about legal topics, whether it's particular cases, a particular area of constitutional law, an analysis of recent court decisions. The Law Review is basically a scholastic journal about legal stuff. And in order to be invited to write on the Law Review, you have to be in the top 10% of the class. Every school is different. It could be top 25, depending on your school. But you want to be on that law review, boy. That is the cherry on the top of the Sunday. You want to be on that law review if you can be. So everybody's gunning for a position on the law review. The other major extracurricular activity is the moot court. Moot court is basically cosplaying as attorneys. That's the best way I can put it. There are two types of moot court teams you can be on. You can be on the trial team or the appellate team. The trial team does pretend trials using fact patterns either based on real cases or on cases somebody creates. And you have a defense side and a prosecution side, and they present their cases to a judge and in some cases a jury, and you do your best to prepare a case. And you go through the motions of doing a trial, but it doesn't count. You're just pretending, but you're practicing the skills on how to present a case. And what happens is a panel of judges determines which side won in the competitions. There are moot court competitions. Yes, it's kind of like judging the cosplay competition at a con. Which team of pretend attorneys handled the case better? That's basically what it is. By the way, moot, M-O-O-T, it's moot court because the case either has already been decided or doesn't matter. That's what moot means. Appellate level moot court involves receiving a transcript of a trial. Again, it could be a real trial or a fake trial. Because it's all pretend. It's cosplay. 
And then you have to write your legal arguments out, create an illegal argument that you're going to make to the pretend appellate division. And then you have to argue your case. And the goal is to persuade the pretend appellate division that you're right. As with the law review, you usually have to be invited to join the moot court teams. And again, they want the top students on these teams. They don't want the students who make the top half of the class possible. They want the top 50%, top 40%, top 30% to be on these teams. So those are the things that you're shooting for while you're in law school. Those are the goals. You want to be on one or both of them if you can, law review and moot court, so that you have a really glowing resume when you go out for those job interviews. Now, I knew from my research that being on law review, being on moot court, those were both good things. And I loved to write. I loved to do research. But I also loved being a ham. I actually took two public speaking courses in high school, and I found out that I loved public speaking. I loved performing. I never really did acting per se, but I did do radio. And boy, there was a lot of performing in radio. And I loved that. And boy, the moot court sounded really appealing to me. Because you get to go out there, you do your research, you do your preparation, you get your case ready, and then you get to put it on. You get to present your case. Whether it's a trial or an appeal, you're up there on your own, and it's on you to convince the judges, to convince the jury that you're right. And that had a lot of appeal to me. But let me tell you, going in day one, day two, day three, those first few days of law school, when you start getting that workload of cases, you start seriously questioning whether you're going to even make it through law school, let alone be in the top 10 or top 20% of the class. Because the workload is horrendously heavy. You literally have hundreds of pages to read every single week in all of the classes. Basically, you have five classes that first semester. You're going to have torts, property, contracts, civil procedure, and con law, constitutional law. That's usually the first five. And you'll meet three, four, sometimes five days a week, depending on the professor's schedule, depending on the school's requirements. But you're going to meet all of the time. You don't want to miss any classes because you have no idea what's going to be covered. You do want to read ahead, and the professors do give you a syllabus of what's expected and when. But you want to take notes in every class. You need to know what the major topics are. You want to know what the finer points of the law are. You want to know what the important cases are in each of those classes, because they come back to you on the final exam. And here's the tricky part of each of the classes. There aren't usually quizzes or tests throughout the semester. You just go to class, and there's a final exam at the end. That's it. A couple of classes, at least in my experience, a couple of classes had some informal pop quizzes. But for the most part, every class had a final. That was it. So you had to pay attention for 12 weeks. You had to outline the entire course. You had to know what was said over the course of the three months that you were just showing up for class and paying attention. And then you had to be able to regurgitate all of that onto a final exam in response to the questions that the professor asked you. And you had no way of knowing what those questions would be. So you had to know everything that had been talked about and be able to call it up during the three-hour final. And yes, three hours for a final was not unheard of. So that's why you showed up every day and paid attention every day. So that you would have all of the material you needed to complete an outline of the entire course in preparation for your final. I mentioned way back at the beginning of the episode that law school teaches you how to think like a lawyer. What is that, thinking like a lawyer? I gotta tell you, it's a really hard thing to try to explain. I mean, I know what it is because it's what I do. I can't help myself anymore. But it changes the way you think because of how you have to think to analyze cases. 
to analyze fact patterns, to analyze the law. One of my favorite phrases is, that's a distinction without a difference. But as a lawyer, that's your job. You have to find distinctions that maybe to Joe Blow doesn't seem to make a difference. But under the law, that little distinction makes all of the difference in the world as to whether you're right or wrong. You have to be able to find ambiguities in areas where other people might think things are just crystal clear, black and white. You have to find the nuances in language that some people might have overlooked or the nuances in conduct that people might have overlooked that might not mean anything to the ordinary person, but to the lawyer and to a judge, it makes all of the difference. You have to develop the ability to see issues from all sides, not just from left and right, but from up and down, from diagonal, from every possible angle, because you never know which side of a problem you're going to be on. And this is especially important in cases of criminal defense. People often ask public defenders, and I did defense work. People often ask public defenders, how do you defend somebody you know is guilty? And the answer to that question is, you're making sure the system is working properly. Everybody is entitled to a defense, and under our law, the prosecution has the burden of proving that the defendant did the crime. The defendant doesn't have any burden under the law, at least in the United States. The prosecution has the burden, and my job as a defense attorney is to make sure that the state does what it's supposed to do in order to prove someone guilty. Now, a lot of people hear that explanation and they go, I couldn't do that. And my answer to that is, I know. I didn't think I could do it before either. But as an attorney, that's what you learn to do. You learn to analyze a problem. You look at a situation and determine what the issues are. And then because you're an attorney at law, you defend the side you're supposed to defend or you prosecute the side you're supposed to prosecute. One of the hardest parts of the law is being able to do that because a lot of time you want to let your emotions get in the way and you're tempted to let your emotions get in the way. Well, this guy did it. Why should I defend him? Well, because that's your job and you elected to take this job. So as part of that job, you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to objectively and rationally analyze a situation so that you can properly defend a client. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy skill to learn. And believe me, it's not always easy to separate your humanity, your emotions, your own sense of right and wrong from doing what you need to do as an attorney. And there are times in your legal career where you face that crossroads, where you face the decision, can I do this? You'd be surprised how many people can't. I was fortunate that the times where I faced those decisions, I didn't have to compromise my morals, my emotions, my sense of right and wrong. I was able to do what I needed to do. Now, everybody's got their own line too far, the line they won't cross. And I don't pretend to know what everybody else's line is. I just know what my line is, and I know I never crossed mine. Now, how does this teaching you to think like a lawyer work? Well, you may have heard of the method called the Socratic Method. It's a way of teaching where the professor uses questions to elicit responses from the students and then follows up on those responses with more questions. The point being, you want to make your students think about their answers, all of the other class think about that response and what their response would be, and elicit further responses from other people in the class with more questions. The professor doesn't necessarily have a right answer, or at least a right answer that they're willing to give you. The point of the method is to make you and the rest of the class come up with an answer and then justify it. The way it works in practice is you go to class, 
The professor has given you assigned readings that are due this day. So you better be ready with the assigned readings. If it's 150 pages, including three cases, you better know those three cases and all of the analysis of those three cases cold. Because the professor may call on you and ask you to explain any or all of the cases or the legal reasoning or the consequences of the case or any aspect of the case that was covered in the readings. So you show up for class on Monday morning at 9 o'clock and you grab your assigned seat because they all have assigned seats because all of the professors assign seats. That's how they learn your name. And they learn your name so that they can call on you by name. When it's your turn, you'll hear something like this. Well, Mr. Gamer Dude, what are the facts of the Smith versus Jones case from 1947? And so I better be ready with the facts of the Smith versus Jones case. Some teachers make you stand up, others make you sit there, but you're the one. You're the voice of the class for those three or five minutes or however long it takes. And if you're not prepared, the teacher will remember. And if you think you're prepared, but you're wrong, the teacher will also remember. And then there might be a follow-up. Well, Mr. Gamer Dude, what did the court determine was the primary reason why Mr. Jones lost? And you better know. Because if you don't know, somebody else will. And they might show you up. Now, this back and forth with a teacher under the Socratic method, it could go for five minutes, it could go for 10 minutes, or it could go for 30 seconds. You never know. So every single class, you have to be ready for this, not only in con law, but in civil procedure and in torts and in property and every class after that. Now, as you get further along in your law school career, the professors do calm down on the use of the Socratic method. It becomes a more open discussion once your mind is starting to click like a lawyer's mind is starting to click. But boy, that first year, it's Socratic method every single day, every single class, and you are on the edge of your seat for basically an entire year because you never know when it's going to be your turn and you got to be ready. And so I made sure that I was ready. I would be ahead in the readings. I would get my work done and I'd be ready to go every single class. And that's how I learned how to think like a lawyer. That just scratches the surface of what law school was like. Honestly, that barely scratches the surface about what the Socratic method is like. But I think this is a good place to stop, at least this episode. Oh, believe me, there's a lot more to talk about about law school. I did get offered a position on the Law Review, and I did get offered a position on Moot Court. And I'll talk about those in another episode. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. I really do appreciate all of the time that you spend listening, and I can't thank you enough for all of your support. You guys take care of yourselves. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you.